Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Ali Partovi. Ali is the CEO of NEO, a diverse community of tech veterans coming together to invest in the leaders of tomorrow. NEO identifies awesome undergrads, connects them with other community members, and invests in companies they start or join. Ali was born in Tehran and lived through the Iran-Iraq war. He studied computer science at Harvard, and his first startup link exchange was acquired in 1998. He has backed Airbnb, Dropbox, Facebook, and Uber, among many other startups. He co-founded Code.org to promote computer science education. Ali is passionate about sustainable food and loves climbing, guitar, puzzles, and family. I can't wait to chat with him and share his story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Ali. Welcome. Hey, Erica. It's so great to be here. Likewise. Okay, so before we get into your very interesting career, we start every show with a bit of a fun question. It's an icebreaker, so you can take it as serious or as light as you want. But what is something new that you've learned in this past week? So this is a bit somber, but just yesterday I was at the memorial for Dr. Firuz Naderi, who is a fellow Iranian like myself, and more importantly, was the head of space exploration, solar system exploration at NASA, and in charge of many of NASA's most high-profile missions, such as the the successful Mars landing and, and the search for life in outer space. And at this memorial ceremony, I had no idea how many people considered him their personal mentor. It was like one after another person would come up and introduce themselves on stage as, oh, Firuz was my mentor. And it was just really impactful to me, the sheer number of people who thought of him as their like most important, most val- valuable advisor in life. And it definitely made me ask some questions to myself as to am I doing as much as I could in, in mentoring others myself. I love that. Well, I think that's, at least as an outsider, what Neo, your current gig, really seems to be about, which we'll get into later. That's really special. How did you meet him? That's, I mean, obviously you very much in my mind are in the tech world. He was very much in the science space world. How did you guys cross paths? Yeah, there's only a little bit of overlap, you know, with companies like SpaceX and so on. But it was really because we're both in the Iranian community. And in particular, I guess it was during the Obama administration when the U.S. government was beginning to make, you know, real effort to kind of have diplomacy with Iran. There were quite a few high profile Iranian Americans who were involved in different ways to try to, you know, just to try to support that. And then also during the subsequent administration with the so-called Muslim ban, which was really more than more than you might realize, was basically a thinly veiled Iranian ban. A lot of us in the Iranian community were trying to oppose that and just trying to reopen immigration for all the brilliant students and grad students coming from Iran uh, to to the U.S. to study. So I met uh, Dr. Nadari through those efforts. That's amazing. That's so special to, I mean, obviously it's horrifying, right, that that was what was needed, but it's amazing that you guys were able to come together for that. I think that happens a lot with community building. You know, it's not always for a really super happy-go-lucky cause, but it's for an important cause. And I think that's also similar to what you're doing now with Neo, right? Like it's, you're trying to stop the old boys club from continuing. It's maybe not the most exciting, positive, happy-go-lucky thing that we have to do that work, but it really does bring people together with shared beliefs and shared backgrounds and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of people who have a vision of how Silicon Valley could be or should be. And in many ways, Neo is trying to kind of be a role model for that uh, in terms of both supporting the next generation, but also having a more more diverse representation. 
Yeah, which is very much needed. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Is there anything that you're taking away? And again, I know it's very fresh, but from Dr. Naderi's service that you're like with mentorship specifically that you want to do more of or less of or made you see something differently? Or was it just kind of reaffirming the work that you're already doing and the importance of mentoring this kind of next generation of tech talent? I'd say mostly reaffirming uh, the thing that I'm already really aware of and a lot of people say about Neo already, but it's always just worth to remember is that I think the most powerful thing for a young person is the feeling that somebody else believes in their potential. And, you know, and very often we have young people in Neo telling us that they feel like we believe in them more than they believe in themselves. And, and that that is a significant, like a major driving factor for them to aim higher and to, to want to kind of earn that confidence and trust. And I definitely heard tones of that from, from some of the young people who spoke at the memorial service yeah. as well. That's so powerful. And I think you also, people underestimate how much that early belief really matters, especially from legendary people, like a lot of the folks that are involved with Neo, like Dr. Naderi. I think you can underestimate how powerful that early belief is, but it was good that you saw that and recognized that. And we're like, oh, wow, I want to have that kind of impact. All right, so let's get into childhood. And um, our listeners might not know this about you. If they know anything about you, they, they might, but you're a twin. Yes, identical twin. Yeah, so you were lucky to get an identical twin. I love my sister. I, I, in some ways, I wish we were identical. We're not, but we're same-sex twins, oh, you were saddled twins, with a fraternal, fraternal twin? How I unlucky, how terrible. Wondered. Just kidding. <laughs> well, you maybe feel the opposite. You might feel like fraternal's best, but I've always wondered, like, we're so similar and I just adore having her as my sister or my twin. Um, I've always wondered what it would be like to truly be identical. So maybe let's just like start with that childhood. Like walk me through you, what it was like growing up with a twin. How you, I guess you didn't know any different, but let's talk a little bit more about like your childhood and kind of those early years. Yeah, I would say having a twin can can be both healthy or unhealthy, depending on how, you know, how different people react. For me, I would say, and it resulted in an extremely healthy level of not so much competition, but just feeling confidence that if he accomplished something, I should surely also be able to do so. And so, you know, I would say we each gave each other a sense of role model or inspiration to, to do better or to excel, you know, because so often, you know, just knowing that something is possible is what's necessary to be able to achieve it. And if you don't see anyone else accomplishing it, it's harder to be the first. And so I guess for me, having an identical twin meant there were, you know, twice as many shots for one of us to accomplish something. And then if one of us did, that meant the other knew they could and had, you know, would usually kind of keep trying to accomplish it as well. So we tended to like all the same things and try to accomplish all the same things growing up. The other thing that was really unique in our childhood was being surrounded by kids of professors because our dad had been not only a professor, but actually a co-founder of a university in Iran. And so all of, all of our mom and dad's friends were basically academics. And so, you know, basically since early childhood, I would say we were surrounded by math and physics nerds. And that was just what we considered was like normal social, you know, social circle. And our best friends were children of professors. And so that also had the similar dynamic where, you know, I remember friends who I'd look to with, you know, a little bit of envy, but also a sense of like wanting to be as good as they were at math or whatever. And having people who were in that world just made it easier to, to aim to be successful there. Like I said before, it's a lot harder if you don't have role models. And for us, we had an ample number of both adult and kid role models. And then, of course, there was the Iranian. The other significant element in our in her childhood was the Iranian revolution and war, which, uh, which you mentioned in, in my bio. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing all that. I I want, did you ever think about, we'll get to the Iranian war in a second, but did you ever think that you wanted to be a professor? And one thing I find so interesting about you and your brother is, I'll be honest, I, I know a lot of twins and not often do they do the exact same thing. Do they mm -hmm. start companies together? Do they 
just basically have a very parallel trajectory. Like my twin and I, I'm obviously in the business world. She's in the medical world. And I see that with a lot of the twins. It's almost like because they are so closely tied to each other, they decide to have their own career identities. And so I'm so curious too, like, did you both always know you wanted to be in this kind of computer science tech world? Did you think you want to be professors? And then kind of the second part to that is like, how did you guys end up doing the exact same thing? I mean, I feel like that is kind of an anomaly for twins, especially identical twins, because they want to craft their own identities so badly and not be paired as a duo. Yeah, well, when you talk about what we chose to do, I'd say most people make that choice really kind of during their college years. And like any other college students, I would say I was, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, trying to keep all my doors open and trying to literally keep optionality. And, you know, so it wasn't until towards the end of college that I really settled on what I wanted to do. But going back to childhood, most of my childhood, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, I think. And this was something that was entirely my own. It wasn't like any parent or anyone else told me that that's what I should do, even though it is pretty customary for Asian and you know uh, Iranian parents to tell their child to be this or that. My parents have never, ever had that kind of relationship with me. I just remember reading a book about, I think his name is Albert Schweitzer, a, a sort of really philanthropic missionary doctor who saved lives of people in Africa. And it seemed to me like, you know, this person was so kind and impactful. And I thought that's what I would want to grow up to be. And that stuck in my head. I guess I must be a really stubborn kid because from age seven till like 20, I was in my mind heading in that path of becoming a doctor in spite of the fact that what I actually loved spending my time on was computer programming, math, you know, like things that were probably in a different direction. And yeah, and so in college, I I don't think I ever really thought of myself as potentially wanting to become a professor, but I also studied physics because that was the subject my dad was a professor of. And and I love physics. And so so I'd say it was by junior year of college that these like very different things, you know, like I couldn't continue being really great at computer science and at physics and at pre-med and had to have some, you know, like some commitment of like picking one and, you know, and ruling out some of the others. Yeah. That's, that's the hard part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what it's so interesting. I I didn't put this together till you were saying it, but you know, what you've done with code.org is very much about teaching and education. And, you know, maybe that is like your mini stint at being a professor, but on a much more global scale, right? Like it sounds like, and I always think, you know, whenever I talk to people, there's always these like hints of what their parents did or traits that their parents had in whatever they end up doing, even if it doesn't look traditionally like that. And so that's actually kind of interesting that maybe you did kind of pursue that, like teaching people and sharing the knowledge that you knew, which was coding and computers. And like that does kind of live on in your work. I would take that further. And I, I would say that NEO is in many ways an educational institution. I, I tell all of our team that, you know, we measure ourselves not just based on, you know, return on investment for the investments we're making right now, but but really for building an institution that will hopefully be here 100 years from now and, and really about helping others maximize their potential. So we don't have, you know, professors per se and, you know, typical sort of what you might think of it as a university, but we do have... I mean, we do have curriculum, we have programs for, you know, different leaders to kind of teach subjects for the, in our accelerator. And I'd say the most important thing that people get out of higher education uh, college is actually the relationships. You know, it may not right. be as, as like programmatized, but I'd say for most people within a few years after college, the coursework and the grades are not as important as the people that become hopefully your, your lifelong friends. And that's definitely a huge part of what NEO is about. I love it. And like you said, your father started the university. What was the reason for him starting it versus becoming a physics professor? Like, did he ever talk to you about that and why he wanted to create his own versus just, you know, getting a job and, and teaching physics? So I learned about that quite late in life. So when I was a kid, mostly what I knew was that my dad just worked all the time and was rarely at home. And, you know, and as a young kid, you don't really like that. And I, you know, I was frustrated about it. As you grow older, I guess I would say I, 
began to become proud of him from realizing what he had accomplished. And it was really in my, I think in my 20s when the university that he co-founded is named Sharif University. And it started becoming clear that it had become one of the top universities in the world by this point. And um, there were, you know, articles about how, you know, all the top grad students in Stanford's physics department were from Sharif University in Iran. And, and so for me, this definitely flipped from being a point of maybe frustration to a point of immense pride and also a sense of, of thinking about my own legacy. And, and there are definitely parallels, you know, starting a university, it's like the ultimate startup. It, it actually makes a regular tech startup seem like, you know, <laughs> both less impactful, but also easier because they, you know, so the, at the time, the best and brightest of Iran would graduate from high school and go to college in the West, whether in Europe or, or the U.S. And likewise, the best people who could be professors would take posts at top schools in the West, like Harvard, Princeton, whatever. And my dad, I think, had been offered tenure by MIT, and he gave that up for this vision of creating a new university in Iran that would help retain the best and brightest of the country and you know give them a chance to sort of stay and build there. And he also had to recruit other professors to give up their tenured positions at really great universities in the West to return to Iran. So convincing, you know, a few dozen amazing faculty members to join a university that doesn't exist yet, that's not easy. They had to build the buildings, you know, and they had they had funding from the government to build these buildings. And then they also had to recruit students to apply and to kind of advertise to the, you know, the graduating high school class that we want the very best, you know, the top 1% to apply to this new university, except it doesn't have any buildings yet or faculty, but please apply, right? So there was this aspect of these three things had to all land in time for each other. You know, you couldn't have all the students show up, but no faculty or have faculty and students, but no buildings. And the right ratio, right? Like <laughs> yeah, the exactly. right one faculty for every 20 students kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So I've listened to that story and it's actually... It's fascinating the parallels to what I did with the first year of starting Neo because we, thankfully we don't have buildings, but we do spend quite a bit on retreats. And our kickoff event in the beginning of 2018 was the first Neo reunion was a 300-person conference where you know we had to reserve space and hotel rooms for 300 people for a weekend before knowing who the people would be. And then there was this whole process of recruiting mentors and veterans and raising a fund and LPs and identifying students and essentially inviting all these people to it, to an event where we had the date, but all these different parts, it had very real similarities. I remember talking to college students describing this vision and they were like, who else will be there? And I was like, uh, I don't know yet. Once I'd say the other similar thing though, is once it got off the ground and people met each other and felt a sense of, you know, kinship and bonding together, it has a momentum and inertia of its own. It's, you know, that's what makes communities so strong is that people naturally want them to continue. And it's, and so that early effort and risk definitely has created something that has a lot of, I think, stability and momentum for the long term. Absolutely. And like you said, you're not trying to build, I mean, this gets back to classic venture, right? Like you're not trying to build some three-year startup that you sell secondaries, call it a day. You're like, you're trying to build an institutional thing, university. You want it to be around for a century. So you've got to put that effort in up front and it's a lot of pressure. Were you able to chat with your father about the early days of Neo? Were you, was he able to give you some like, oh man, back in my day, or was that, did you guys not chat too much about Neo building? We did have some talks about it. I think there were, you know, the types of things we talk about were like, how are we evaluating college students? Because we have a whole process, you know, that's now in its seventh year now of trying to identify the most promising CS students in America. So we had talks about that, how to make it be meritocratic and, you know, how to have it be objective. But, you know, Objectivity is interesting because you want it as a goal, but it can also lead you towards being, you know, standardized testing and so on that actually may not, may not actually be as fair as you might think. So how to kind of 
find the right balance between objective and subjective. So yeah, we talked about things like that. It's a while back though. I don't remember very well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've certainly figured it out. And I think one thing I I was reading about was just how you guys have been um, pretty forward thinking and how you do these like reviews and like, you know, understand people's competency in CS because some of the more technical interviews that these big corporates do, they're not always the most accurate and also not always the best for folks that are from underrepresented backgrounds. So it sounds like you've really developed an interesting process there that obviously you're still refining, but that you're doing things a little differently. Oh my gosh, Erica, I'm so grateful that you read that and that you brought of it course. up. It's, it's, yeah, it is something that not only means a lot to me, but it also has just been an immense amount of work. So, you know, in the first year of NEO, I literally personally traveled around the country. And then my colleague, Albert Nee, who was an early Dropboxer, also traveled, you know, followed my footsteps, visiting dozens of colleges and personally giving technical interviews to, to students. And, you know, technical interviews, what I mean by this is like literally giving them a problem to solve and asking them to like write code during a meeting. Albert had a different interview method, which was asking them to show something they've already built and to talk about it. And between these two methods, we, you know, we compared notes and kind of, you know, our aim was to find the technically strongest, most promising students in the country. But I definitely heard feedback from from some students that, why are you doing this? This, you know, not everyone who's strong is going to excel at at one of these types of interviews. And, you know, you're going to miss some people or introduce some bias or so on. And and also technical interviews introduce sort of a power dynamic where, you know, where you're it's a bit of a stressful situation for the person being being tested. And really, it's just that not everyone reacts to it the same way. I personally love that kind of interview. I love problem solving. I love being under pressure. I enjoy the kind of risk and thrill of can I solve something? But there's definitely other people who, no matter how brilliant they are, they shut down from the performance anxiety. You know, it's less about their technical strength. It's literally probably more about whether someone enjoys being on stage or under a spotlight, which I do, but many people do not. Yeah. So even from the first year, we began thinking, how do we change this? And we were aware that, well, this is how Google does interviews or Facebook interviews, technicals, you know, people, you know, how should we do it differently? And yeah, in year one, the, the change that I started making very early on was that I asked the students to give me a technical interview as well, so that it was at least eliminating some of the power dynamic. I mean, there's still a power dynamic because obviously I'm evaluating them for a for a spot, but I, I viewed it as, look, I'm also trying to prove myself to if some somebody is the top student from Stanford, they're deciding whether they want to be a part of this thing that doesn't exist yet. And I'd want them to know that it's legit and that the person starting it is, you know, can still like still got it. Own. You still, still got, got it. it. Yeah. Yeah. I still remember my interview with Russell Kaplan, who was a master's student at Stanford in 2018. And we had scheduled an hour for me to give him a technical interview, which he crushed within 20 minutes. So we had 40 minutes left and, you know, weren't sure what to do at the time. So I asked him to give me his hardest technical interview question. And he was like, oh yeah, I have this one that's been stumping my college roommates and myself. You know, let's see how you do on it. So he gave it to me and I was like, that's not that hard. And I, you know, I gave the answer and he's like, okay, that's just the first level. There's this harder level of it. And he gave that and I was like, I think I can do that too. And I solved it. He's like, yeah, that's only level two. There's two more harder levels. Anyway, so the, uh, I think I finished level three by the end of the hour, but level four and five I think I like we had to part, but I like called him from my drive home saying I figured out level four. And then I think I wrote him an email at like 2 a.m. being like, I finally figured out level five, which is which his roommates and himself hadn't figured out themselves yet. So he was like, this is he was impressed. He was definitely, you know, definitely had that feedback of, OK, you still got it. <laughs> I love that. Well, did he enroll? Did Was that convincing enough? Did that work? Yeah, both ways. And Russell is now one of the mentors for Neo Accelerator. We invested in his, I helped convince him to join Tesla when he graduated. He was trying to decide between Tesla and a few other options. And then he started a company, which we funded and it got acquired by Scale. He's now a director of engineering at Scale and one of the mentors in Neo Accelerator. So he's, yeah. And uh, I'd say he's also one of my just 
one of my friends at this point and going to his wedding in August. And so, yeah, I have a lot of different relationship stories like this that started with a technical interview. And But I guess a key part of it is this aspect of trying to reduce the power dynamic to make it be more about two people each solving problems, maybe a little bit of trying to kind of prove yourself to the other person, but not, you know, at least with a little element of it being bi-directional. But the other thing that since then we've adopted, which is far more flexible, and is that we let every candidate choose how they'd like to be evaluated, and including to opt out altogether of a technical assessment. So if you fill out our application form as a Neo Scholar, there's there's two different first pass coding tests, and the third option is to opt out if you can provide other exceptional justification, like other proof of your abilities. If you have an open source portfolio, we have 30 volunteer GitHub evaluators who will look at your code and write an assessment for us. And then if you make it to the second round interview, we have 70 volunteer interviewers at this point. So definitely no longer just myself and Albert, (laughs) but we let you choose from five different interview styles, how you'd like to be assessed and match you with an interviewer who will interview in that form, interview you in that format. You know, and the general premise is that different people thrive in different ways and we give each person a chance to put their best foot forward. It makes it a lot more complicated for us to match these people, you know, who's going to be interviewed by whom and and then to later try to calibrate the results against each other. But I'd say it's it's a way more appealing experience for the candidates. And and on the whole, I think it just enables us to to select a, both a better and also a more diverse overall crew. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for walking through that. I It's so interesting to also see how the process has evolved. I think so many things in life don't allow for nuance. And the fact that you guys have boldly said, like over the past few years, we're continuing to basically live in the gray with this and get better and better, I think is really important. And it, again, not to keep bringing it back to the university you know, conversation earlier, but it really reminds me of what we're seeing now with universities kind of rethinking standardized testing and like rethinking affirmative action in some positive ways, some negative ways. But I think a lot of these things do need to be questioned because so much of the process contributes to the problem. And there aren't a lot of people that are willing to spend the time and energy to actually fix it and get to the root of it and find the very best. And we all know that the very best are going to be super diverse, but it takes, like you said, years. I mean, you have a whole team working on this and volunteers doing it for free. And you still feel like you're continuing to improve it year over year. Yes, I will say, I think it's, I love that you made that analogy because Neo is only six years old. And I would say we have every year adapted our selection process and, you know, our application process and it, comparing it to universities, the, you know, obviously these are much older institutions, but they don't change. They, they're not updating their processes nearly enough. And I would say we are, as a young institution, I would say have a, I would I know this might seem arrogant, but I'd say we have a more more thoughtful and more flexible selection process than many universities' admissions process. I was going to say a lot of universities have taken a kind of blunt approach of just no SAT or yes SAT, whereas our approach is kind of you choose. You know, you can choose from multiple different tests that you might want, and we'll just take as many data points as we can get and then use that to get our best picture of a person. Yeah, it's even like these big, you know, tech companies. Think of like a Google, Facebook, Microsoft, whatever. I mean, you want there to be more, the word that's going to mind is like nimbleness, you know, like nuance. Like you want there to be more, but it just takes time and effort. And it's easier to say one size fits all, you know? And so I commend you guys for doing that. I know that that's been a big effort on your team's part. And, you know, that's how we change the diversity problem, right? It's like, unfortunately, these things are complicated. (laughs) That's why we're in these situations. And it requires real nuance. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to jump back a little bit to you wanting to become a doctor. So you're, you're at Harvard, you're like, let's say 20 years old and you were like still thinking doctor, 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 what made you decide computer science? And obviously your career since then you've, and as we know from your technical interview, you've become very good at it. It became a passion. You still do it now, but what contributed to that switch? And also your brother, like what was his path? Was he also doctor and then switched? Or I'm very, again, the twin thing. I'm going to ask you more twin questions than a normal interviewer, but what was his path to like at that, in that college time frame? Yeah, it's really funny because if I think back to my myself as college aged, I thought I had complete clarity on what I want to be when I grow up, which was a doctor. 
But what I want to study at Harvard was all over the map. I loved physics. I wanted to do that. I loved biology. I wanted to do the pre-med work to, you know, uh, towards being a doctor. But I probably more than anything loved coding. And so I was trying to do all the above. My brother Hadi, in contrast, I think he had clarity on what he was going to study. Like, I mean, literally, he just declared. We both went to Harvard, and he was like, "I'm studying computer science. You figure out what you want to do." And that put me in this situation where I didn't want to do all the same things as my brother. So I was trying to find my own niche, kind of like you're describing. So I was the one who was kind of exploring what would I study that would be different. And yeah, so for the first two years of college, I was majoring in physics, planning to become a doctor. But it's also, we were both financially insecure. So we needed, you know, we needed to work, we needed to earn money to help support help pay for tuition. And so as summer jobs, ever since high school, we had been coding, like, you know, finding jobs as software engineers. And so both my freshman and sophomore years, I was a summer intern at Microsoft. So was my brother. We were, we both interned at Microsoft, but I didn't, I didn't mentally view it as like my career path is to become a software engineer at Microsoft. I just thought I need money. And you know, I was doing that as a, you know, way to earn money to, you know, to, to cover my, my needs. It was the beginning of junior year that I started, there was this confluence of like, oh, what I've been doing every summer might be a step towards my career. What am I, you know, which is a little obvious in hindsight, but it's just funny that at the time I viewed them as separate, like my summer jobs were just how I earned what I needed at the time. And they were not necessarily, it wasn't clear to me that these are a path towards figuring out what I want to be when I grow up, which, I mean, one of the main points of advice I give to the young people I mentor today is that you should use your summers as, you know, you only have like three summer internship chances in college. And these are precious. You never, ever in the rest of your life, you'll never have another internship. These are precious opportunities to do different things than explore what you might want to be when you grow up. I had, I had not thought of it that way. And so coming into junior year, I was, you know, the thing that completely flipped my direction was actually a conversation with one of my other classmates. We were kind of comparing our summer experience. I think it was like the first week back from from the summer. And I was kind of showing off about how awesome my summer was and what a great time I had had working at Microsoft. And, and I asked him, so what did you do for the summer? And he said he had started a company, which completely, you know, put me in my place. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that that was an option. This, mind you, this was like 1993. So it wasn't, it just wasn't even in our vocabulary. This was before the web browser had come out. You know, college students did not start companies back then. I mean, other than like Bill Gates and one or two rare examples. So I was, I was both really envious, but also really curious. And, you know, and I basically begged Adam to let me join him in some way and, you know, managed to weasel my way into kind of helping him run this business. And, and then in my senior year, I had a sort of mini startup of my own with my brother and another friend. Neither of these were really tech startups per se. I'd say they were more like consultancies, but for sure, this is what gave me this sort of taste for what it's like to have have customers depend on you, what it's like to have employees depend on you, what it's like to make a sale or lose a sale or, you know, to have somebody be upset at something that's, you know, that's not working right. It made everything else I was doing in school seem so much less, less relevant or less exciting because, you know, grades or so on felt just like an abstract thing. Whereas business to me really felt like it's the act of serving other humans and this dependency of other humans, you know, it made my work feel so much more important and feel so much more like I was, I had people depending on me. I'd say I became really addicted to that feeling. And, you know, I I knew for sure this is what I want to do when I grow up. So it really brought clarity. I was no longer doing pre-med. I was, I shifted my major to computer science, but that was really, you know, like kind of aligned with this path it became really clear to me that I wanted to have my own tech startup and that's kind of the direction I wanted to go in. I love it. I I'm so glad that you got that clarity and you know, so, I think uh, a lot of people, 
<laughs> yeah, you're like, it worked out. I think a lot of people don't get that even when they're in college, you know, like you could have totally ended up doing the biology thing and kind of going that route. And so one thing that's so, I think, interesting about your career that's different than a lot of the people I interview is you had a lot of big swings and big successes early in your 20s, which is actually very uncommon, especially even back then, when nowadays I feel like we idolize every, you know, 20-something that has the big company or fund or whatever. But I mean, and, and you know, I know we don't have too much time left, but you were involved with Link Exchange in your 20s, which ended up being a smashing success full circle selling to Microsoft. What was it like starting a company that early? And was that your intention? And I say that because I'm very much entrepreneurial. You know, I think a lot of people need to put in those apprenticeship years of like building those small things like the consultancies or those, you know, non-VC backable businesses that don't really scale and then go work at an early stage startup or a growth stage startup, put those years and then they start their thing. But you really like this vision of wanting your own company you joined that that link exchange team very early. Was that was that part of the plan? Was that something you always wanted? Walk me through that a little bit because I think for someone, you know, in your 20s to kind of take that leap is really impressive, especially back then when it wasn't as idolized as obviously it is now. Thank you so much for saying that, Erica. It's it really is moving to me how how well you've identified what it was like for me. Yeah, thinking back to this was 30 years ago almost or 25 something years ago. So what I'd take a step back and say is that if I could go back, I wish someone had told me to do different experiences in each of my summers, which is what I tell students today, you know, and specifically to have at least one summer working at a startup. You know, in my case, I did have this experience of, you know, running, running this sort of small business of our own, but I didn't ever have like an experience working at a venture backed startup you know, to have role models or mentors and see like how it's done properly. I had two summers at Microsoft and then coming into senior year, I did have, thankfully, I had the clarity that I want to start my own startup. But the way I saw it was kind of binary of if I don't have my own, I should get a job somewhere to like gain experience and sort of be a holding pattern until I have my own idea. And I didn't see those as leading to each other. I just thought, okay, if I'm going to get a job, it'll be at some big corporation and I didn't even choose the corporation based on like how much I would learn or whether it would prepare me for starting a startup. I just, I think I chose it based on the highest salary. So I ended up at at Oracle and, you know, so if I could do it differently, I would say the best preparation for starting your own company is to work at a fast growing venture backed startup. And, you know, this should not be something you view as, oh, it's the antithesis or it's, you know, different or no, it's part of a life cycle. It's part of a, you know, a, a journey of building the skills and the network and, you know, and seeing the role models and so on. So in my case, mentally, I thought I was like, oh, the job is unrelated to my, <laughs> my like life dream. It's just like a place where I make money for now. But what I was doing it in parallel, as I was leaving college, I had a real sense that I'm leaving this amazing environment where I'm surrounded by people smarter than myself and each of them were going off in different directions and I wanted to kind of stay connected with the ones that I thought were the most inspiring and and, and the most different or had the most to offer. And so I created this so-called business discussion group. I think we called it business brain trust. I was kind of the, the leader of the group and I convinced like eight or 10 folks from my class, a couple from a class under me, a couple from a few other universities to basically discuss business ideas once a week or so. It was all on email. It was just an email group. And we would just lob in, somebody would lob in a concept or idea or a news article they'd read. Is there potential to do a startup here? And the rest of us would poke holes in it. So in some ways it was like a fantasy, you know, investing club without any of us having anything to invest in my mind, though, this was legitimately, I was kind of recruiting these people to help me figure out what startup I would start myself, and maybe one of them could be a co-founder. So over the next year and a half, my job was not preparing me really for for being a founder, which is what I regret. But thankfully, this thing was because it put me in a position where I was essentially building the muscles of evaluating business ideas, even though it was just you know in our heads having a diverse set of opinions helped. And 
a year and a half out of college, so I was 23 or so, I was very close to starting a company with my friend James based on an idea that was had been his his thesis in college, which was a great idea. It was essentially the equivalent of what Cloudflare is today. So we were kind of developing that idea and writing a deck and so on when I heard about the Link Exchange team, which had already started before me. So Tony and Sanjay, also from Harvard, had already started this company and they were they were already seeing early incredible early traction and they were looking for a third basically for a third coder to join them and they weren't even calling it a third like a co-founder per se but they actually reached out to my brother Hadi first because Tony and Hadi had been on the like the ACM programming team together so it's quite funny I I had never been on the programming team but they reached out to Hadi and he said I'm doing really well at where I am you should talk to Ali. He's just as good as I am at coding. And at the time, the only real criteria they had was someone who can code because the link exchange code base was about to fall apart. It was getting so much traction. They had they had built it, not expecting it to take off as rapidly as it did. And they could see the graph of how fast traction was growing. And they could see they had like 13 days left before the servers would fall apart. And this was before the days of long before AWS and so on. And so they needed someone who could start literally the next day and help rewrite all their systems. And so I had this unique advantage of I had spent a year and a half evaluating business ideas. I remember meeting Tony and Sanjay at 10 p.m. on a Sunday. And the next morning on Monday, I walked into my job and said, I'm I'm finished here. This is not two weeks notice. This is you know, negative one day's notice. Like, I'm just here to collect my stuff. I'm joining a startup, you know, right now. And I think I joined them without even negotiating my comp. I just realized this is what I want to do in life. And this is the team I want to be with. And, you know, even figuring out the equity, like, we'll get, we'll figure something out that's fair. And yeah, and it was quite crazy because we had this real sense of like 13 days before like the business implodes unless we're able to rewrite everything. So that was a, you rarely have such a like perfectly packaged situation where your skills are needed and, you know, and very measurable kind of opportunity to put your skills to use. Yeah. Talk about, you talked about earlier wanting to have an impactful career. So that's, that's pretty impactful being the guy that saves the day. A couple thoughts. One, does Hottie kick himself for not taking that gig because it was a very great outcome for all of you. Does he ever make fun of you? Like I was supposed to be the one that was the the third guy or does he not, does he let it go? Does he not make fun of you or make fun of himself? I guess. <laughs> yeah. So we have a unique relationship in, in many ways, but first of all, Hadi had, I didn't go through this, but graduating from college, Hadi chose a much better path initially than I did. He joined Microsoft and within the first, like, you know, before Link Exchange, like within two years out of college, I had made a higher salary, but he, he received stock at Microsoft that was now worth a few million dollars, like $3 million. So he was quite a bit wealthier than I was. And so in many ways, I think he was doing this as a way to like help me have a path to catch up, so to speak. Also, he wasn't just, it wasn't just the stock. He was at the center of the most impactful group within Microsoft. Microsoft had just started a web browser in 1995. And my brother joined that team when it was like five people and became the head of product. And so he remained head of product for the Internet Explorer browser as it grew to like a several hundred person team. So he was doing really well career wise. In fact, I remember back then, one of the things that really made me feel like I need to change, (laughs) like I'm not on the right path was people would reach out to me being like, oh, Mr. Ali Partovi, can you introduce us to your twin brother, the one who's the head of product for Internet Explorer? And, you know, as a twin, that definitely made me realize, okay, we both went to the same high school, college, all equal. And now, like, this one is the one that everyone's trying to reach. And I'm just, you know, only relevant as a pass through to him. So that definitely made me feel like I could be maximizing my potential better. But anyway, as far as when I joined Link Exchange. Hadi was incredibly supportive, not just making that introduction, but in those first two weeks, like we were working day and night and the Microsoft team Hadi was on was also working like, you know, hundred hour weeks, but 
Hadi would like check in with me at one or two a.m. and say, "All right, I'm done with my work. Is there anything I can help you guys with at Link Exchange?" And I would actually send him little coding tasks. I'd be like, "Actually, I'm working on this, but if you could write this snippet, it needs to do. You know, these are the inputs. I need these outputs. If you could do that tonight." And he'd like literally pull an all-nighter and write the code I needed and like send it into me at like by six a.m. and be like, "I think it's done. Check it out." So he helped a ton. But I also shared all of my stock with him. So I basically, we, I treated it as if we're in it together. So as far as the earning part, you know, we both did really well from it. Yeah, absolutely. My, my twin heart is just like so happy right now hearing you say that. I think it's really special that you've had each other. And obviously you've both had these incredible careers and it all worked out. So those early days, it's kind of funny to look back on, but that's really sweet that he was so supportive. And what I also, you know, last piece, and then I want to ask you our final question it's clear you were also such a community builder from like as a 20 something. I think that's what's so cool too. Obviously what you're doing now with Neo, you're building this incredible community, but even then like building this little group chat of Harvard folks, email yes, chain this is true. as it was. This is true. I, it's cool I also to had a that. community. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not, I don't think it's on my LinkedIn, but I also started a thing, a side thing called drink exchange. That was kind of a play on words. Uh, that was a uh, social you know, a monthly social club of sorts. That was, a, it was a little bit of a spoof on the, obviously on the name Link Exchange. So yeah, yeah, bringing people together has definitely been a passion of mine since, since long ago. I love it. And for those people that are listening right now that are hearing the word Link Exchange and like, where do I know that from? Tony, one of the co-founders started Zappos. And so yes. if any, if people now are hearing that name and they're like me, when I first heard the name, I was like, where do I know the whole Link Exchange story? He wrote a book. And that's where yeah. you may have listened to it. And, and rest in peace, obviously, Tony's past. There were quite a few impressive people in that. You know, the thing I learned from, from Link Exchange was the difference that a single individual can make and the importance of trying to hire people smarter than myself. And that's what I advise to all founders today. And my, my mantra in investing is to try to invest in people smarter than myself. Our team at Link Exchange, besides the, the founders, had just so many really brilliant people just a couple to mention, Alfred Lin went on to later join Zappos and become the you know president of Zappos. And now he's a general partner at Sequoia. Tony Shea, who you obviously mentioned, CEO of Zappos. Scott Bannister, he came up with the concept of search advertising and gave it to Bill Gross, who started GoTo.com, which became Overture. But essentially, the, the business model that is AdWords was invented by Scott Bannister. And Scott then went on to become one of the earliest investors in Uber and just, you know, incredibly successful. And then we had a contractor named Max Lefgen who left to oh start PayPal. Yeah. And, and now so Affirm, like, which everyone knows Affirm, obviously. Of course. Yeah. Affirm. But, you know, through Max and Scott was the first investor in PayPal, you know, a lot of the early PayPal mafia were either like at Link Exchange or, in, you know, one degree separated from us. So it was, uh, yeah, quite an incredible crew that, that has gone on to do really great things. I'm kind of like the least successful of the crew. Oh, my gosh. Well, I don't agree with that, but I think it's really special to have folks like yourself involved with Neo trying to change that old boys club, right? Like, I think people like me, I always think about where's the next PayPal mafia? What does that look like? Who does that look like, right? And I think it's really important that we have communities and organizations that are doing things maybe a little differently. Because obviously that was an incredible, incredible, brilliant group still doing great stuff. But it's exciting to see this next generation of talent maybe maybe look a little more diverse, which which is exciting to see. Okay, last question. I know we're over on time. You gave lots of great advice for 20-somethings that are technical or are entrepreneurial and want to go that route. But we asked this to all our guests. If there's a piece of advice you could give to any 20-something, maybe they want to be a doctor, maybe they want to be a professor, what's that one piece of advice that you would give them? I'm going to give two. Number one would be invest in relationships, you know, and the, the most important long-term thing in your life are the people. And when I say invest, focus on giving, focus on how you can help others rather than, you know, helping yourself. The other point of advice, the mistake that I think most young people make, and I, and I made when I was younger, is basically focusing on risk minimization and, you know, essentially trying to avoid failure and that tends to lead you towards safer and less remarkable routes. And I would encourage you to shift towards 
maximize reward, go towards whatever might be a bit more risky, you know, to bet on yourself means you have to do something that's a little bit scary. And if you're not a little bit terrified, you're not maximizing your potential. I love that. It reminds me a lot of what Bezos talks about, the regret minimization framework, you know, like it's just this idea, especially when you're in your 20s, you got to just go for it. But it's scary. It requires a lot of courage and it's very scary. Speaking from experience, it's very scary. Well, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. Can you tell everyone where they can find you on social and they can learn more about NEO if they want to be involved and you know pick their type of interview? Well, NEO is at neo.com, N-E-O. And by the way, it's named after a character from The Matrix who... I saw that. I read that. Yeah. 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 Who doesn't believe in himself and he has mentors telling him to, you know, that he's the one and then to bet on himself. So it's very connected to the last words I said. Neo.com is our website. And, you know, whether you want to apply to our accelerator program as a startup founder or to our Neo Scholars program as a undergraduate and talk to myself and the various other mentors, all of that you can reach through Neo.com. And then, and you can follow me on Twitter, A Partovi is my handle, A-P-A-R-T-O-V-I. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. It was so fun chatting. I feel like there's a million more questions I have for you, but this was so fun to meet. Yeah. I'm also on LinkedIn, obviously, and I'm also on TikTok. I have a, uh, I have like a TikTok channel. So on Twitter, I tend to tweet failure stories. I try to like share my like most, you know, my most embarrassing business failures and, uh, and then on TikTok, I have a channel to share like my w- weekly failure of the week type story. Unfortunately, I have not posted a lot lately because we've been, we've been, I have to say, we've been crushing it for, for the last few months. So we're failing to fail, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, my goal is generally to try to share whether it's huge mistakes or little mistakes, you know, basically to be vulnerable and share, you know, whatever I'm learning or whatever I'm regretting. Because I think that helps young people realize that it's okay to fail. Absolutely. I love that. And I think it's people like yourself who need to share those stories, you know, like not people who are just starting out. It's the people who've done it. Well, Ali, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And we'll chat soon. My pleasure. Such an honor. Thank you, Erica. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts. 